appreciate uh, Shane sharing his story for us like that. We are continuing our series. Talking about vision is where we're at. We, two weeks ago, we had our big birthday party. We turned 10 years as the Livingstones Church, and so we had a big celebration, lots of different activities, including cupcakes, and so we enjoyed the morning. And in it, we once again just recognize that for at least 10 years now, we as a church have been attempting to make an impact on our neighborhood and our community. The 42,500 people who live in the zip codes of 46613, 46614, about 11,800 children, give or take a few, who go to schools like Riley and Marshall and Jackson and Hay and Lincoln and Hamilton and Monroe. And we've been doing that by intentionally trying to pursue relationships that we think the Spirit of God will go before us and help us accomplish that, but to establish relationships through a rhythm as a church of prayer and service and invitation. So we've been talking about that, and we've watched God do a lot of things over the past 10 years. I mean, some amazing, great things that we've been able to witness. And now, after 10 years, we take a look at what might come for us in the next 10 years. And we recognize that what got us here might not be what gets us there, so to speak. You're not having a stroke. The lights are coming on brighter, it looks like. It's okay. <laughs> and it provides a good opportunity for us at this moment just to stop and think about some adjustments or consider our vision anew. And I think about the next 10 years is that I reflect on how do we recommit to making an impact on the south side of South Bend as our vision mandates. And I recognize that we are not now where we were 10 years ago. We have established presence here on the south side. And we have received favor from many in our community through what God has done in this place. And while Leaf Ninjas and giveaways still might offer a blessing, and I think we should still do those sorts of things, what I recognize is 10 years later, its effect and impact might not be the same as it was in our first 10 years. And so last week we talked about a passage out of Acts chapter 17 some language that I was struck by as I considered how do we make an impact on this, like a genuine, real impact on the south side of South Bend. I'm struck by the language of another church that existed in the first century that was also trying to make an impact on their community and neighborhood and city and society and really the Roman Empire as a whole. They were a countercultural community who committed themselves to the central message that Jesus was Lord. And Jesus was king, and they pledged themselves, not their allegiance to the Roman Empire and to Caesar, but to the kingdom of God. And then they lived their lives proclaiming and demonstrating that kingdom of God. And any time you live your life proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God, you can expect there to be, in that expansion of God's kingdom, collision with all other kingdoms. And it was no different in the first century. And so we read in Acts chapter 17, it's in verse 6. I'm going to cut to the halfway through verse 6. And this is where a, a riot breaks out in the city of Thessalonica because of Paul's message about Jesus being king. And what that means is then that it's a usurping message. What that means is Caesar's not king. Jesus is who we recognize as the legitimate king. And we've committed ourselves to his kingdom, not to the kingdom of the Roman Empire. It was a usurping message, and it caused this riot in the city of Thessalonica. And the city goes to a guy named Jason's house to get Paul, thinking he's there, to drag them out in the middle of this riot and to kind of have their way in regards to beating them. And it says this in the accusation. These men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. 
And I love the language in that passage. I think this might be something for us in the next 10 years. Like, it's that language of, and some of your translations will say, the accusation is, they're troublemakers who are turning the world upside down. And when I read that, I thought, I like that. That has legs to it, I think, in terms of the Living Stones Church here on the south side. How do we make an impact? Become troublemakers who turn the world upside down. Now, not picking a fight just for the sake of picking a fight, but troublemakers who are committed to and demonstrating the kingdom of God, realizing that when we do that, it will come into collision with all other kingdoms because on the face of the earth, even now, there are other kingdoms. You know that, right? In fact, in my own life, the biggest threat to the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Sam. What I want to happen, happens. And what we mean by conversion is that I am yielding the kingdom of Sam to the kingdom of God. The same thing would be true in your life. There are other kingdoms. There are political kingdoms. Did you know that all around us? There's local political kingdoms, statewide kingdoms, national kingdoms, international kingdoms. And all of them make absolute claims and they establish for themselves systems and structures that are oftentimes propped up behind it, as Paul will use in the language in Ephesians, by powers and principalities. There are economic kingdoms all around us with economic structures and systems that largely benefit those who are the keepers and the creators of these systems. There are religious kingdoms all around us where people presume to get up and speak on behalf of God and want to decide who gets in and who doesn't get in. And it was no different when Jesus lived on the face of the earth. And the message that he preached of God's kingdom, meaning that what God wants to happen is happening, that message from Jesus collided with all of the political, economic, and religious kingdoms of his day. That's why they crucified him, right? You, you, you understand, Jesus did not get crucified because he was a nice guy and loved everybody and tolerated everybody and kissed babies all the time. That's not why he was killed. He was killed because when they heard his message about the kingdom of God, they took it seriously, and they took it literally. And they recognized if that actually happens on the face of the earth, it will subvert our own kingdoms and the status quo that we have created to make sure that everything stays the way it is. And that's why they crucified him. And that's why in the city of Thessalonica, a riot breaks out. It's not because the apostles went around and said, hey, we just want everyone, if you would, just bow your head and say this prayer and accept Jesus into your heart so that you can have your sins forgiven so when you die you can go to heaven. That was not the mission of the early church. The mission of the early church, even here in Acts 17, is the message that Jesus is king and his kingdom is now present. And as that expands, it becomes a threat to all other political, economic, and religious kingdoms that exist. And that's why a riot broke out because they understood very well exactly what that meant. Now that is how a church makes an impact. And that is how we, the Living Stones Church, I think, can make an impact in the next 10 years. Troublemakers turning the south side of South Bend upside down. But this really goes back to an identity thing for us. Like, who are we as a church by way of our identity? Because what I don't want us to be is chaplains to our society. Now, let me explain what I mean by that for just a moment. Um, my wife, Kelly, and I, we love to go cruising. Like, that's one of our favorite things to do, to, to go on a cruise. Because for the money, we just, you cannot get as much food, entertainment. I mean, you just add it all up. Can't beat a bill with a cruise. But what I discovered is that did you know that they actually have a chaplain on the cruise ship? Did you know that? Like on a vacation cruise ship, they actually have a chaplain. And I've never done this before. Here's the deal. If you could get yourself to the port of call, you, know, you have to pay for it yourself, they don't pay you to be the chaplain, but you get a free cruise if you're the chaplain on the cruise ship. And do you know what a chaplain does on a cruise ship? Nothing. 
And do you know why? Because no one needs a chaplain when you're on a vacation cruise ship. Now, they do on Sundays hold an interfaith worship service at a location of the ship. And do you know who, do you know who goes to it? No one, <laughs> because they're all on a vacation cruise ship. In fact, I can't think of a least essential role on the cruise ship than the chaplain on the cruise ship. In fact, if something were to happen on the ship and there was a real emergency and a real crisis, like water's coming on board, do you know who the last person is that I'm calling? The chaplain. Now, we might be glad he's on the ship. We hope that God notices that one of his employees is on our boat, and that might mean good things in terms of him being on our side. We hope he's in his room praying on our behalf, but if the boat is in real crisis, unless that chaplain can pick up a tool and get to work to stop the inflow of water, no one thinks the chaplain is essential. In fact, do you know when the chaplain on a cruise ship is finally important? You know when that, it, it almost never happens, but there have been a couple times in history. You know when the chaplain is finally important? When all hope is lost, which isn't marriage. <laughs> I felt like I should put that in there real quick, which is not marriage. When all hope is lost and we're going under, then we want the chaplain to say a few words, say a prayer, sing it as well with my soul, something because we're about to go meet our maker. But until the very end, when death is imminent, the chaplain is the most irrelevant position on the boat. And quite honestly, because of the cruise ships I've been on, I'm not sure even in the end that people prefer the chaplain over the bartender, I'm just saying. What we don't want to be is chaplains of our neighborhood where we're largely irrelevant, ignored, and obsolete. Now, the neighbor doesn't mind that we're here. In fact, it might think, well, oh, we got a good church in our neighborhood, or that we're good for offering a prayer before the Little League opening ceremony, or maybe offering the invocation at the beginning of the South Bend City Council meetings, but no one really needs us until death. And when you contrast that identity of being a chaplain to the community with the church in the book of Acts, they're anything but chaplains of society. They're troublemakers who are turning the world upside down. They are with a prophetic voice speaking truth to power. They are establishing countercultural communities that actually manifest justice and peace. A community of Jesus followers who are committed to carrying forward the message and ministry of Jesus. That what God wants to happen on earth happens on earth. And so when you read through, there's a little passage you can find in the book of Acts where it even kind of gives an indication of what outsiders thought of the church and the church's power and activity in their community. One's in Acts chapter 5, says in verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, which is a part of the temple mount. No one else dared join them. Even though they were highly regarded by the people, Nevertheless, it says this in verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. You see, what happens is the community recognize, oh, God is, God is in, the, like, you can find God in them, and there's the power of God is among them. And so there were some that, like, were too afraid to even join, and then it says at the end of verse 14, but nevertheless, the Lord just kept adding men and women to their number daily, those who were being saved. At the very least, they weren't, they, they were relevant. They were not chaplains of their society. They were troublemakers who were turning the world upside down. And this only happens when our central message is the kingdom of God. What God wants to happen here on earth happens. And this is what Jesus taught us to pray, did he not? Did he not teach us, say this, thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done here on earth, just like it is in heaven. That the kingdom of God has broken in here and now. And somewhere along the way, the church's message got hijacked to being all about dying and going to heaven. And so pray this prayer so when you die, you get to go to heaven. And listen, I'm not opposed to going to heaven, but what I'm saying is that's not the central message of the Gospels or the book of Acts. That wasn't the central message, and somehow it got hijacked. There's no threat from a church who has as their central message and vision just trying to get everybody to pray a prayer so their sins can be forgiven, that when they die, they can go to heaven. But there is a threat from a church who has committed itself to the central message and vision of Jesus and that the kingdom of God is here now. And we will be ambassadors of that kingdom. In fact, Paul will use that same language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I love that language. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us then that message of reconciliation. So he says in verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You know what an ambassador does, right? Like, like when the United States sends ambassadors around the world. So for example, let's say we sent an ambassador to France. Where our ambassador lives in France, in the consulate there, it is under the laws and the Constitution of the United States of America. And in France, they enter into diplomatic relationships with people in France, and they have negotiations. They represent the government of the United States in a foreign country. What Paul is saying is, you are ambassadors of the government of Jesus. And wherever you find yourself, your task is to make sure that where you are, what God wants to happen, happens right where you're at. So in your workplace, you need to recognize when you go in tomorrow morning, you go in as an ambassador of Jesus' government. You, re you represent what God wants to happen, happens in your workplace. And whatever God wants to happen in your neighborhood, when you enter into your neighborhood, you do so as an ambassador of Jesus, representing God's government in your neighborhood. And in your home, you are an ambassador of Jesus, representing what God wants in your home, because that's what it means to be an ambassador of Jesus. And that's what the early church was. They recognized, we don't belong to the Roman Empire. We belong to the kingdom of God. And we will represent the kingdom of God. But when you do that, you have to recognize kingdoms collide. The greatest impact on the south side will occur, and this is even our vision, even using the language of ambassador very explicitly, when we live out, here and now, the principles and teachings of the kingdom of God when we imitate Jesus in our own lives. And the kingdom we, rep we represent disrupts, listen to me, because we can't have a romantic notion about it. It will disrupt every other kingdom. The disruption is in the manner of Jesus, meaning it's ultimately loving and it's nonviolent and it's born out of the heart of God's grace and love, but is still disruptive. And this is what we see in the incarnational ministry of Jesus as he embodies and ushers in the kingdom of God. But this is a very important point that I, 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 want, you, I want you to hear this. When Jesus does this, like commits himself to God's kingdom, that what God happens here on the earth, when he commits himself, he always picks a side. Jesus always picks a side. Because we tend to think, oh, well, Jesus just, I mean, he loved everybody. And listen, maybe he was capable in, to love everybody, but in his incarnational ministry, how he actually acted, what he actually did, he always picked a side. He may have exhibited the love of God to everyone, but if you watch, he identifies and he picks the side of the outcast. Watch how he treats the leper. 
who in that community would have been ostracized by everybody. They would have to literally yell out loud, unclean, unclean, to make sure that nobody came in close proximity. You were literally cut off and ostracized from any community you might have ever had. And Jesus does what? He walks right up to the leper and even touches them. He always sides with the outcast. But watch what he does with Samaritans. Everybody hated the Samaritans. Everybody. And watch how Jesus treats the Samaritans. Watch how Jesus will even risk his own life by using the Samaritan in the story as the good guy. And what happens as a result? Watch what he does with the woman who's caught in adultery. He picks a side. And it's not even the side of the law, which he could clearly do. He picks the side of this poor woman who's about to be stoned to death. Watch that he picks the side of the tax collector and the prostitute. He always identifies with the poor, with widows, with beggars. He identifies with those who have been shut out of every economic kingdom, political kingdom, religious kingdom. He identifies with refugees who have been mistreated in all other kingdoms. And how does he do that? Watch his ministry. Jesus heals as a demonstration of the kingdom of God, which you would think this would be a positive that everyone would be applauding. Right? Oh, look at that. Jesus. Like, but isn't it interesting when you read in the Gospels that Jesus heals, almost always after the healing comes controversy and conflict. Who in their right mind would be upset that a man who was paralyzed could all of a sudden walk around? Yet there were. Who in their right mind would be offended that a man who was born blind can all of a sudden now see? Who in their right mind would be upset by that? And yet almost every time that Jesus engages in healing as a demonstration of the kingdom of God, with it comes controversy. And do you know why? Because the healing itself violated their purity codes. Either encoded in the law, meaning keeping the Sabbath oftentimes, or encoded in society and culturally as expressions of cleanliness. So what happens is as you're walking around in the ministry of Jesus, he's engaging people that everyone else around is going, ooh, we don't like them. They trigger in us repulsion. We kind of tend to think of them as less than, even subhuman, so to speak. And when Jesus just goes up and he blesses them in their life with healing, it creates controversy. We would much rather have cleanliness and order and law. And Jesus violates all of that. And what I'd say to us is, who are those people in our neighborhood, in our community? The others around might kind of have a ooh, repulse reflex that they kind of violate our senses of purity or cleanliness codes, whether in our religious law or in society and culture. When the kingdom of God advances in the manner of Jesus, people who are treated as having less value, people that might trigger a repulse mechanism, individuals who others might think as, as unclean, here get a seat and a place as equals at his table. And you will know we are there, there because other churches will talk about us. Well, I heard they let those kind of people in their church. When we want in our church the kind of person that no other respectable church wants, that is when you know you'll be living out the incarnational ministry of Jesus. When an often repeated criticism of the Living Stones church is that we eat with sinners and tax collectors, that is when you know as a church we are representing Jesus in the kingdom of God. The second thing he does beyond healing is teaching. I mean, he actively calls people to himself and talks about this is what life in that kingdom will now look like. And it's interesting, his first call is always repentance. If you're going to be in my kingdom, you can't think like this anymore. 
And if you're going to be in my kingdom, you can't be like this or do this anymore. There's a whole new order here and a whole new set of values and a whole other system that's taking place. That's why on the Sermon on the Mount, he has no problem saying, I know that you've heard it is said, but I say to you, what's he doing? He's teaching people there's a new way and a new order in my kingdom. And many walked away impressed and amazed at the authority he had, but others, don't forget, walked away and wanted to kill him. It is teaching people that the kingdom of God is the only lens you can have. And it is what it means to be converted then to Christ and to call him Lord. It means, listen, I know in all other kingdoms, when you get mad, everyone kind of typically deals with their anger like this. But in the kingdom of God, this is now how you're going to deal with your anger. And I know in all other kingdoms, when someone slaps you in the face, you're going to defend yourself and exact an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But in this kingdom where what God wants to happen happens, we're going to turn the other cheek. It's a new order. And it's revolutionary. And it impacts the world. You know what else Jesus does? He's a truth teller. I mean, even to powers. He speaks the truth. He calls lies for what they are. He calls out systems of abuse and oppression for what they are. We call out systemic sin and injustice, not just in individuals, but among the powers and principalities that are. We point out the difference between the kingdom of God, what God wants to happen on the earth, and what the end goal is for all other kingdoms. That is an aspect of proclaiming and advancing the kingdom of God. But you could just also see in Jesus' ministry, he just demonstrates the kingdom of God in forgiveness and in grace and in love. I mean, outposts of real salvation. And I don't mean like, what happens to you after you die. I mean salvation here and now. That when a single mom raising three kids and she lived with, they live in poverty, when they find employment and the ability to take care of their family with dignity, it is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. When the addict who is being crushed, caught in the midst of his addiction, when he is crushed by the kingdom of self-centeredness, when they find freedom in the kingdom of God, it's a demonstration of the kingdom. When anyone's inherent image of God in each individual is recognized and called out, it is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. When the dignity of persons is restored, when our community is known for justice and peace, that is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. And that's how we make an impact on the south side of South Bend in the next 10 years. Listen, you know we, we live in a broken world, right? You know that. We all know it. We all have our own sensitivities and our own political persuasions, but deep down we all know we live in a broken world where there are injustices all around us. And you can just pick one. I mean, it's going to be a long list. Anytime you're dealing with the systems of poverty and the poor, behind it will always be issues of injustice for those who have not in their state of poverty. And we even know it here. Like we were helping a family here who was working with the housing authority to get adequate housing for their family. And it was very obvious. Janae G spent a lot of time working with them. And it was very obvious in a little amount of time, like, oh, my goodness, like the entire deck is stacked against them. Like they had so many rules and so many regulations, there was no way they could ever get out of the situation they were in. And it just continually perpetuated what was going to be. It was clearly an unjust system. And a community of faith that rises up to say, no, no, we're going to be, we're going to speak truth to power and advocate against these systems of injustice is a very important thing. And it's a demonstration of the kingdom of God. When we have issues of immigration and refugees, listen, we could debate all day long about what's the best way to handle that and deal with those sorts of things. But what you cannot do is go, <laughs> immigrants and refugees. 
because what God wants to happen happens on the earth. And we've got to enter into that conversation and figure out what's the heart of Jesus in that. And that's what makes an impact. Even when it comes to our LGTB friends. Like when we as a community want to talk about whether it's okay for somebody just by virtue of their sexual orientation to be kicked out of their house. Like discrimination in that form cannot be a virtue of Jesus. That somebody just by way of their sexual orientation is fired from their job just because, like, a great employee any other, otherwise? Like, we're not for that. That's not a value of the kingdom of God. These are issues of injustice. When we have a round of schools that are under-resourced, it's one thing to give away school supplies, which is great. It's another thing to challenge the very systems that are leaving our neighborhood schools gutted of the resources and funding that they need. And to say to our teachers and students, we will stand up for you and we will support you because it's a sign of the kingdom of God. To addictions, to governmental policies that are unjust. And so even as we think through issues of race in our community, in our neighborhood, which is a serious issue, and even one that we've been talking about on our peace and justice conversations on the third Monday. In fact, we just had this past month a great conversation about recognizing discrimination and privilege, and that's going to work carrying that right on. You're invited to the third Monday of March in the pit. Well, we'll talk about that and the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of figure out where, what is all this about and what does this mean in regards to the kingdom of God and peace and justice, to mass incarcerations and other criminal justice systems. Just follow the money. Discrimination all of its forms. When we deal with people who are walking through teenage pregnancies or just job training and entrepreneurship, listen, I'm not against doing Leaf Ninja, right? I'm not. Like, breaking leaves, is, it's a blessing. We should keep doing that. But you know what I think will really impact the south side of South Bend? What if we as a church entered into what's called social entrepreneurship? And what I mean by that is profit's not the biggest value. still want to make a profit, but that's not our highest value. What if real community social transformation is our highest value? And so you start to think about our neighborhood here on the south side of South Bend. And what happens is a lot of churches, they were very quick to want to do coffee shops. You ever seen churches that they would have a coffee shop and kind of you know, find a place where you could come and gather as a community and drink coffee and get to know your neighbors? That's a great idea. But I'm not sure a coffee shop's going to fly on the south side of South Bend in the same way it might on another side of town. As I think about the south side, it's just an idea. You know one of the things that we kind of are lacking here and what we kind of need in our neighborhood? A laundromat. Like, the only real laundromat that I'm even aware of is across from TCU on Ireland Road. But, like, in our neighborhood community, there's really no good place to go and do laundry. What if we established a business on the south side of South Bend and provided that service to those who need it? And this is not a charity. You're not like, hey, come do your laundry for free. You're just providing the best quality and the best price laundromat anywhere around. And rather than kind of having a coffee shop that I'm not sure is going to fly in our neighborhood, you can, in that laundromat, provide space for community to gather as they're washing and drying their clothes in a kid's play area that's safe and, right, and well-resourced. And what happens is you're allowed then to hire people who might not ever get a job otherwise because of their backstory, but they could get a job there. And you're doing training. That, like, you, you see what I'm saying by social entrepreneurship? Like, what if, you know, there's lots of houses that are being foreclosed around us. What if we just bought one and committed ourselves to rehabbing it? And just think about the job opportunities and job skills that could be created in just that. And then you turn right around and you provide it back to the neighborhood as private ownership is what the neighborhood truly needs for it to be healthy again. And we just do that over and over and over again. I mean, could you imagine people who they just know when they're filling out that application, they're going to get to that box, you've got to check here, and they know I'll never get a job like that. Well, you can get a job here because we see something other than your backstory. We see the presence of God and the kingdom of God at work here and now. And if somebody could tell me how to buy Miami Hills, I would do it in a heartbeat. Somebody help me out on this one. How do we buy Miami Hills? And what? Let the kingdom of God take effect.
this is what it means to make an impact in the next 10 years, whether it's through housing development or just even being advocates for victims, maybe of child abuse or domestic abuse, or maybe rescuing women who are caught in sex work because of their economic situation of being pimped out. How do we go after that? How do we deal with gangs? How do we heal, teach, and demonstrate? And the reason why is because this is the stuff of the kingdom, the here and now. The heaven has come to earth, and it's the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Listen, our heart already beats for the south side. We just want that heartbeat to be accompanied by real kingdom justice and peace that we're convinced that's what will make an impact. And that might not translate for us in terms of church growth and numbers, to which I'd say, that's not our problem anyhow. That's God's problem. Ours is just to be faithful. It might even ultimately bring about a great deal of scorn, and we should expect that from the powers that be and those who are vested in the interest of the status quo. But this is what happens to Jesus and his disciples. They're troublemakers who turn the world upside down and make an amazing impact. What it will mean is we'll have to enter a season where we really listen to our neighbor. Like you can't presume, oh, we know what it means. No, no, like you have to really listen to your neighborhood and community. And at the same time, you have to listen very focused to the Spirit of God and what He's calling us to. We have to commit ourselves to having a kingdom perspective and a kingdom lens. Remember what Paul said, we are no longer, we don't view anyone from a human point of view, but now as a new creation. And ask, what has God given us by way of resources? And what opportunities begin to emerge and present themselves that we can go, oh, we could do something about this. Like We know how to do something about this. We move forward humbly but courageously expecting kingdoms to collide and for there to be spiritual warfare. But we're troublemakers committed to Jesus to turn the world upside down. Amen? Let's stand together and let's pray.